I've been looking forward to getting a chance to talk to Martin uh, Peltier. He's a senior portfolio manager at Wellington Altus Private Council. Martin, appreciate you taking the time. And, and I got to say this up front. Uh, people can find you on Twitter, Martin Peltier, of course. Uh, but man, I love the stuff you put out there. It's, it's uh, such a great perspective from a long career, first as an analyst and now as an advisor and that kind of stuff. So I, I just think it's sorely missed in this economy or in this kind of environment that we're dealing with. So let me just start with the, the Barbara Walters in me and ask you, what worries you most for individuals in the environment we're in? Um. I think people are, they've got, they have their head in the sand about the state of the broader economy and the consequences of that and their exposure from a risk standpoint, um, thinking that we're going to go back to the way things were pre-COVID and COVID was a structural change. And whenever there's a big structural shift or a structural change, uh, we don't go back to the way things were. And so maybe it's a hybrid or maybe, you know, it's something that looks a little bit like it was before, um, but we really don't know. And so that means with that heightened level of uncertainty, you have to take a look at um, what areas that you are potentially exposed, what areas that your kids are potentially exposed and start to plan accordingly. And uh, the best time to buy insurance is when it's cheap and, and you're healthy and <laughs> and things are good um, and things are still not too bad and so you know why not add a little bit of insurance into your life um, by by changing a few things what about exposure right now i mean obviously at least i'm worried about global debt country debt individual debt you know and obviously when we've had this big bounce in interest rates you know uh we've seen it play out in things like uh, banks' treasury portfolios are, you know, are, are dramatically declined, whether it's in the UK pension funds or, you know, more recently with uh, Silicon Valley Bank. You know, it's a similar story. Are you worried about further disruptions that way into the broad-based economy, that we're not over the sort of financial crunch of this sharp rise in interest rates? Um, I, I think that um, it was overplayed back in March of, of this year um, because there was a few bad apples. Now, having said that, there were very large bad apples. And so Silicon Valley Bank, for example, is a very large bank and uh, they behave badly by unhedging their uh, long duration exposure. And uh, there are those saying that we're going to, you know, that's not going to be a problem down the road. And that wouldn't have been a problem if if the fear factors weren't weren't there and people hadn't hit the uh, the withdrawal button on their iPhones, uh, which is a lot quicker than lining up at the bank itself. Um, yes, there are some problems. And there always have been pockets of, of various parts of the economy and the corporate world that are behaving badly. And those who overextended themselves into a rising rate environment are paying the consequences of that. And so, yeah, there's going to be areas uh, and dislocations. But for the most part, um, you know, I'm, I'm actually you look at this, the state of, of just demographics and the amount of wealth that's been generated over the last uh, 15 years from quantitative easing and money printing, especially in the U.S., I, th I think there's like, I don't know how much, there's trillions of dollars of money and wealth created in, in the U.S. Um, among baby boomers, and they're starting to spend that. And so for the most part, I think what's going to happen is we're going to see um, a widening of the gap between the wealthy and the poor. And uh, that's going to destabilize political systems 
And we already are seeing that. You know, you've got uh, on one end of the spectrum, you've got the extreme right with, in the U.S. with Donald Trump. And then you, actually, surprisingly, you have the extreme left with Biden and, 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 and for, for a capitalist type of, of economy. And you see that in Canada as well, too, with uh, the NDPs and the liberals almost uh, aligned perfectly in, in their philosophies and approach. And then on the other side, you have the conservatives uh, that, you know, some may say are kowtowing towards the, the right side of things. And so um, you, you have that dislocation. And so the wealthier uh, people are kind of in the middle uh, of that spectrum. And the poor people are, are looking at the extremes because the status quo isn't working. Yeah, I've never, you know, and again, it was strictly my opinion, but I've never seen a bigger distinction that way. Uh, you know, and COVID certainly exemplified it. It used to drive me nuts when they said, we're all in this together. When I said, I'm certainly not, you know, I'm choosing which house to live in. You know, uh, you know, I'm fortunate to have that opportunity to have a choice. You know, I'm not yeah. sitting in a one bedroom apartment with a, with a child or two children with school closed yeah. or playgrounds closed. It was just, and, and I wasn't worried about a paycheck. You know, yeah. and there was that level of uncertainty. But I think that there really was a laptop class making some decisions and there really was a group. And I continue to see ignoring, uh, you know, even even today uh, when we have the finance minister, Christia Freeland, sort of celebrating that mm -hmm. inflation's down to 2.8 percent when, you know, certainly everybody's wandering around going, which is only up 2.8. I'm trying to find something. You know, my mortgage payment's up 30 percent. My food's up 9.1. I'm trying to find something that's only up 2.8. And again, who does that hurt? We know that it's moved up the income scale. It's not just the lowest quintile. Now we're into about 50 percent of Canadians. But I just don't see how, you know, it just seemed to me it was insensitive to the struggles that some Canadians have been going through, continue to go through because, you know, while my inflate, my rate of increase in costs may be slowing down, which it is, but certainly I'm still paying a big number. <laughs> you know, my cost of living is difficult. So, yeah, so, I just yeah. think that distinction you've made is very important and, and one I've never seen it to this degree in Canada anyways. And, and so a couple of things from that, you bring up some really good points. Um, first of all, uh, looking at the inflation side of things, and we can have a separate discussion, but yeah. you know, there's the baseline effect. And so um, we had some pretty high levels of inflation uh, from a year ago. And so as that becomes uh, further, as we move further and further along in the months to come, it's going to be very challenging to, uh, to see the same kind of level of inflation. And we'll actually start to see it go up again. And I, I don't think people realize that. But more so in regards to what you're talking about, um, about in regards to the 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 disconnect between politicians and the people, what happened was with COVID, um, the federal government, in my opinion, has been aggressively attacking small business. It came out of the shoots, calling small business tax cheats and oh, yeah. everything else, and and they've rapidly grown the public uh, civil service by forty percent, and no one out of the government's done the same. And then uh, from COVID. Uh, it, it was used, in my opinion, used as a means to, hey, we're the government, we'll take care of you, we'll help you through that. Um, but that kind of philosophy has been carried past now that we've gone through uh, the, the worst of it, potentially, hopefully, with, with COVID. That same philosophy is like, well, um, we're going to continue to help taking care of you and implement social policies to do that. Um, and so you have to justify uh, the results of what you've done so far. So you have to go and cherry pick and say, well, hey, look, we told you we're going to deal with inflation. We've dealt with it. 
when in reality they they haven't they may have actually made the situation worse <laughs> um, by forcing to make a Canada raise rates and 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 running record levels of immigration when there just isn't the uh, the housing the healthcare and uh, the uh, the policing and the education to support it um, and they're leaving it to municipalities well it's the municipalities fault or the provincials fault it's not us and so um, instead of hey. Let's work together. We have a problem with with uh, uh, with productivity um, in this country. A serious problem. Uh, let's try and find ways to boost productivity. Let's find find ways to invest in uh, research and development. Let's find find try and find ways to increase uh, self employment, which happened in the U.S. Uh, coming out of COVID. That's why they're stronger than we are from an economic standpoint. And then uh, those corporations will end up hiring more people. And then you can grow your way out of that problem because all of a sudden now you have a lot of jobs um, that are available for the immig- immigration coming in, more people building houses, the economy is going that way instead of, hey, let, let's socially con- uh, construct it ourselves by, uh, by giving you the money to deal with it. And that just never works out. One of the observations I've made, and again, it's it's uh, just simply anecdotal in myself, is that we have a bigger choice right now in government than I recall. It used to be that, you know, there was sort of overlap, conservative, liberal kind of thing. And now they've gone different directions with clearly to me, it's climate change is the priority, not economic growth, not productivity changes, not capital investment. And that'll be a choice that Canadians have to make, you know, which yeah. is which side do they want? But you, you mentioned about the productivity, and that's a great example of, you know, something I, I sit there and kind of, hey, we've got a problem here. Uh, it doesn't seem like much of the public is there, and I don't think it's a priority for government. I, I, I see no sign that it's been a priority for government. Um, yeah, and, and so if you look at, at – at, there was a recent poll that came out, I believe, that they believe the government is not following through on – on what most Canadians want, mm-hmm. and, and and so, uh, but again, that comes down to uh, this this mindset by the existing government that we know better than you. If it, a, a great example was, I remember when um, the the city uh, took too much of my property taxes. This is a number of years ago, and mm-hmm. they overbuilt everybody. And there was a huge argument as to whether they should give that money back or not. And and it was back to that beer and popcorn. And yes, if I give the money back. They're going to spend it on beer and popcorn. Well, do you know what? That's my damn money. I'm sorry yep. for swearing, but that is my money. If I want to spend it on popcorn um, and, and movies and, and beer, which I don't drink, but if I did want to, um, I'll do it. It's my money. And so give it back. And there's that kind of mentality that we know better and uh, we're going to drive policy. So climate change. You don't realize it, but climate change does take a bigger priority than feeding your family, for example, because um, we'll feed your family. Don't worry. You can trust mm-hmm. us. Um, when in reality, you know, you have 3,000 people line up in, in northeast Calgary for fresh vegetables. Um, I mean, this is crazy. You go to East, you go to, you go to Vancouver and parts of the city are completely filled with tent cities or Nanaimo. Um, we have a, 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 serious, a serious crisis here. Uh, you look at, I'm a big proponent of mental health. Um, mental health um, is, is is at epic proportions following uh, the lockdowns and among children. I mean, these are things that, um, you know, you're even seeing at a municipal level where a, a new mayor declared a climate change emergency when um, the biggest thing she can influence is housing and, and removing regulations and building more houses and, 
and helping people get off the streets. I mean, it just seems to be that that really dislocation between the, the needs. Now, having said all of that, absolutely, we have to do something to deal with uh, the worsening environment and, and, and warming temperatures. Absolutely. Uh, but we also have to weigh that against, um, you know, the, the average person being able to feed their family or get a job um, or actually buy a car. And uh, how do we do that? Uh, it's funny, we've got another example this week with Olivia Chow, the newly elected mayor of Toronto. It's one of the first things she did is ban leaf blowers. Now, I'm not sure, sure where that is on the list of priorities for uh, the public there. They have similar challenges as we do across the country, especially on the housing front, which uh, I, I've said many times now. I think the housing problem that we are about to experience, now Calgary's better you know, I mean, not to the same anywhere near the degree that Vancouver or Toronto or Hamilton has been experiencing, Montreal. I, I just think it's going to blow people away, the rental crisis coming. You know, yep. we've been talking about you can't bring in a million people. Actually, the plan is to bring two million people in plus in three years. Yeah. And, well, and we already have a shortage of rental. You know, we know people, that. People are leaving. And I had a coffee with a really good friend of mine that's doing a development down in Costa Rica. And the quality of life, the social context, and everything else is is that much better. So, and, and it's being flooded with Canadians, and those are tax dollars that are leaving, right? And that's capital that could be deployed. I want to mention something, and I saw a tweet. It was really interesting, and I think this is something that government's missing. Um, it, and, and there, there was a recent some problems with government looking at phasing out oil and gas, and the perception of that, and what does that mean? But um, I read today, the other day, that in 2022, Suncor alone spent $3.1 billion on indigenous procurement, a whopping 20% of the overall spend. By comparison, the entire federal government spent $1.5 billion from 1996 to 2018 through their aboriginal procurement strategy, well under 1%. So if you really want to have an impact, right, on, on areas of of the economy and areas of your civilization that is struggling, that could use it, um, why not support business? Why not allow business to grow and expand and have them partner with, uh, with those areas to help solve some of those problems? You might be surprised with what happens. One year, um, they were able to double the size of what they spent from 1996 to 2018. Um, look at the impact that's having. <laughs> Uh, let me go further with oil just for a second and bring it down to the individual level, but the broader level there. Uh, my editorial earlier on was just talking about what did we get in return for saying no to natural gas uh, to the degree. I know there's exceptions, but, you know, saying there's no business case on the East Coast and the Americans jump in 10 minutes later with record LNG sales to, to Europe, that Europe buys a trillion dollars worth of LNG. <laughs> you know, I, I thought that was pretty good money on my, you know, <laughs> but I, I'm just wondering what... what the prospects, I look at a disconnect right now between the oil market and the paper oil market, you know, the commodity trading market. Uh, are you bullish on oil's prospects or are you standing aside or what do you think? I'm talking now as an, an investor. Um, I have never been more bullish in my career. Um, and I ran through the, the bull run from 2000 through to 2014 when OPEC, yep. um, you know, threw a wrench into the whole thing. Um, and the, the reason why I'm, I'm very, very bullish, um, and I'm not a perma bull, 
Um, I run a, a neutral strategy, so I can go zero weight if I wanted to, and we were. We went to almost zero weight following 2014, um, and we came back in only uh, two years ago, and we're really overweight. Uh, the reason being is um, there's been an attack uh, by uh, environmentalists and governments on the supply side globally, um, and, and, and so that's going to put uh, at, at risk um, any sort of uh, growth and demand or uh, underestimated growth and demand, and which is, you know, the, there's a quite the pervasive view that we're going to see peak demand um, on, on, on oil. And, and that's just not going to happen anytime soon, in, in our opinion. Uh, you just can't scale out um, renewables to the point that it can be disruptive. And what I mean by scale is you need to disrupt by two things, cost and convenience. Um, you need to make life a heck of a lot more convenient for people and you need to make it more uh, uh, cheaper. And that's how you scale. And uh, renewables do neither of those. Now, I'm not saying we should ignore that. Um, you know, when these renewables, uh, if you look at the project economics, they only worked for a lot of, a lot of them uh, when interest rates were really low. But let's just say inflation stays high and the cost of capital is at four or five percent. The economics don't work without government subsidies. Um, and so you can't scale and, and you can definitely not going to be able to scale government subsidies. So I'm going with that is there's not going to be the demand impact as much as what uh, I think many are expecting. And there's going to be a greater supply impact um, with uh, with with more than what uh, people are expecting. And so there, that dislocation, all it takes is a couple, uh, one or two million barrels a day to, to set the margin. And so the fundamentals will eventually catch up. Um, people aren't counting barrels right now, um, but eventually you'll have to. And when that happens, you'll see a nice pop. And, uh, and so we're positioned for that. And I would think that uh, position in Canada as part of it. I mean, I'm just looking again at our discount, our Canadian dollar. Dis well, there's an oil discount too, but the Canadian dollar discount, uh, you know, there that uh, the valuations aren't there at all. You know, we're not paying even average prices, I guess I'd say. You know, well, it looks like the cash flow is huge. Look at it this way. We get paid in U.S. dollars or these companies. They sell. Mm -hmm. So um, the oil price equivalent Right now, the U.S. dollar is starting to, to come down. The Canadian dollar is going up a little bit, but for the most part, uh, back in the 2000s, the dollar was on par, um, and our cost structure is in Canadian dollars. And so, we're actually uh, making more money than we did uh, during the previous run, and uh, we're only getting tiny multiples on that because people think that oil prices are going to fall back to 30 or 40 dollars a barrel, um, and very few are running forecasts. Uh, at the curve or above the curve, and, uh, and and so when people have that that realization that maybe these prices are going to stay stick around, um, there could be a multiple expansion um, as people want to get access to that cash flow, and uh, and so I think that's the position that you want to have. And you know what? Um, as I mentioned to you at the beginning of our conversation, uh, you want to have some inflation insurance in your portfolio and in your life, and right now it's cheap. So why don't you have a little bit of inflation protection and add a little bit of energy? You don't have to go um, everything all in <laughs> um, like uh, so many on Twitter uh, that, that will tout the energy trade. But, um, you know, adding a small slice, I mean, the S&P is only like 4% or five, not even 5%. Mm -hmm. um, going up to 10 is probably not a bad idea. 
Um, just staying with the broader market, I, I know this is, again, a, it's the broad question, but you look at this market, look at the valuations. What's driving this market, do you think, that we should be aware of? So I wrote a piece in my Financial Post column about it um, recently, and I talk about what's really driving uh, the markets, in particular the U.S. market and U.S. dollar. And, and if you take a look at the correlation between Fed liquidity and the Fed's balance sheet, and the S&P 500, it's running about 84%. So 84% of variability of the S&P can be explained by Fed liquidity. And so everyone's looking at AI, they're looking at, uh, mm -hmm. at, at cryptos, all of these sorts of technologies. The bottom line is it comes down to Fed liquidity. And you can see that in March uh, when the Fed re started to re-inject uh, uh, money back into the, into the system. Uh, with the concerns over the banking situation at that time, and the, the stock spiked. Now, um, more so right now, you have the stocks have completely removed themselves from uh, this Fed balance sheet is starting to tighten, start retightened again. And so either uh, the, the stocks are, are too high, or the Fed's going to do easing again. And I don't know about you, but the economy is looking pretty strong in the U.S. So why would they start cutting rates? Mm -hmm. I know inflation's coming down. Um, well, I would cause them to cut rates. And um, if you look at it, anytime they start cutting rates, it means that there's something not good in the economy. And uh, it's probably not a good time to own stocks. And so um, I, I, I am a little bit leery about uh, some, of the, some of the stocks trading at really, really, really high multiples. Now, having said that, there is a whole swath of other areas of the market that are not uh, reflecting that kind of scenario. I think that's a key point for people to focus on because, of course, you get sort of celebrity stocks, you yeah. know, whether it's the fangs, you know, the, yeah. uh, of those. So there's a tendency for the sort of gestalt to talk about those things. You know, yeah. when you say when you look at the broader market, there's better values there. I mean, it's interesting because it, I was around in 2000. <laughs> I was thinking of a story that's kind of funny. It was one of the better calls I've ever made because I wrote it in the newspaper. Mm. And I, I, I wrote it on the date of the high of NASDAQ. Yeah. And, you know, it was no serious, or it was serious, yeah. but it wasn't like sophisticated. It was simply off the top of my head, I think 3Com owned Palm Pilot. Yeah. Palm, oh. Pilot, Palm Pilot went public with a yeah. higher valuation than the parent <laughs> company. And so it was that. And I went, well, wait, <laughs> you know, that, okay, yeah. now you're nuts. Now you're crazy here. <laughs> and, uh, but it does remind me a little bit of that with some of the, some of the uh, valuations through the tech space, or at least the charts look very similar. Uh, it looks so exponential. Uh, so, I mean, I'm a cautious person. I, I'm a risk control person. I'm getting older. I, sh I would recommend that go to my children also you know, control the risk. Uh, you don't have to be on every boat that leaves the dock. So uh, I'm just saying it, I'm just wondering from your perspective, are you have some of those worries or you think I'm just an old guy with some over overwrought concerns? Well, I was a young whippersnapper in the 2000 uh, meltdown, but I didn't remember it. Um, you know, you had Cisco. I mean, these mm -hmm. are really good companies. So you can have something like called good companies and bad stocks. And, uh, and so I think the seven... Uh, like Microsoft, great company, bad stock right now. Um, NVIDIA, good company, bad stock. And, and, and what I mean by that is, let, let's just take a look at, at NVIDIA or, you know, it's trading at 45 times sales. And so some Microsystem CEO, when it crashed and, and it was trading at 10 times, not 40, uh, he said, well, people, investors should have known that 
um, if you're going to invest at 10 times over 10 years, you have to pay out all of your revenue every year with assuming that there's, there's going to be no cost of goods. You don't have to pay any of your 35,000 employees. You don't have to pay income tax, which is illegal. Um, and you, you flow it all through to investors. And, and in the case of NVIDIA, they have to pay out 400% of their revenue. And, uh, and so, you know, I look at it and say, okay, let's put NVIDIA aside because I mean, maybe that's an air pocket, but let's look at Microsoft, uh, 12 and a half times sales. And uh, historically, over the last 10 years, they've been able to increase revenue by two and a half times. Really good, by the way, for a trillion dollar, trillion dollars of, 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 of size of a company to deliver mm -hmm. two and a half times revenue growth over 10 years is fantastic. Now the market's saying 12 and a half times, right? Yeah. And so that's, that's to get your money back. How is that going to work? And I haven't had anybody uh, give me an answer. If you can walk me through their capital program over the next years, uh, next 10 years, that's going to grow their revenue by 12 and a half times um, and show me where that capital is going, how is it going to do it? And so is it all going into AI and AI is going to be exponential growth, right? Um, I don't know. I, I just don't, I don't, I don't get it. Um, I, I don't want to take too much of your time, but can we just give that as a, a I, I know this is just sort of a broad brush, what mm -hmm. you'd be advising individuals. You don't know their circumstances, so I appreciate that or their age. So this is very broad brush, everyone. But I yeah. just, a flavor of what you're doing these days. So I, I think, and most of our clients are retired or entering retirement, um, want to de-risk, and, uh, and and they've made their money through their work, through mm -hmm. being an entrepreneur, being a professional, whatever the case may be. That's where you take the risk, right? Yeah. You're going all in on yourself and your skill set. And that's the best, highest return on investment you're going to get, is identifying the area that you're passionate about and that you're good at and the value you can contribute the productivity that you can you can add and people will pay top dollar for that and so um, that's been monetized and so how do you um, transition towards more of an income uh, approach and a conservative approach and I'm also writing about that as well and so the traditional way back with my parents was, or my parents parents um, was well you retire and you, you buy a ladder GIC and you can just you know, fly down, like I mentioned, to Costa Rica and sip your margaritas and you're off to the races. And it's supplemented and provided your lifestyle requirements. That hasn't been the case with interest rates. Maybe now that rates are come back up again, but with inflation where it's at, it's probably not going to cut it. So what do you do? So it's forcing people into riskier sides of the market in the traditional 60, 40. Um, and that hasn't worked either. If you look at the last uh, five years, um, a 60-40 portfolio has only been able to generate an annualized 3% return. And so stocks have done 7.5. So do you go all in on stocks and take risk? And so we're, we're agnostic about that. We're like, okay, what kind of rate of return do you need to meet your lifestyle? And most people need around a 6 or 7% in retirement, um, like it was back in the old days. So how do you do that? And so we structured uh, almost like an all-weather type of portfolio um, that has been able to get that kind of return or close to that return despite the ups and downs. So like that ladder GIC, a little bit more volatility. And we're doing that through uh, a little bit of waiting to cash, which is paying you 5%. Our bonds are down to 7.5%, in a 60-40. So we're really underweight bonds. We're not buying the long duration risk. Um, and thankfully, that worked out well for us last year because 
we didn't lose any money in bonds. Well, bondholders lost 15%. So you were told to be safe in the bonds and you're like looking at your portfolio today and you're still down 15%. Uh, that was not very good advice. Um, well, then your advisor says, well, that worked for the last 35 years. It'll work again. Well, I just told you about COVID. Maybe things have changed and maybe it won't. So that's why our fixed income is down. Um, we are big into something called structured notes. I've written about them. Um, we like them. They're a hybrid between stocks and bonds. Um, they offer a level of predictability to your portfolio and they offer some significant downside protection. And that's about 30 to 35%. So we replace our fixed income with structured notes and they've been really good for our clients. Mm -hmm. And then the rest would be 40 to 50%. Uh, 55%, a little bit of private equity, a little bit of uh, private assets and alternatives, and then some public markets. And, uh, you know, you have to have some exposure to that growth, some exposure to those big names in there. Absolutely. Even though they're trading at high levels, maybe trim that back, look at the value segments of the market, look at some dividend stocks that are paying well. You know, the Canadian banks are looking really good. Uh, some of the U.S. banks have sold off. You're getting 6% dividends. Um, dividends have not participated with uh with the growth segment so maybe a look there so that's about half your portfolio and we find that that's worked really well sort of an alternative all weather 60 40 instead of that you know 40 percent. i don't know what you would call it but we call it a goals-based uh risk managed return well as i was just thinking here you've given us uh normally the expression is food for thought you've given us a banquet and yeah. uh, I, I so much appreciate you finding time. And I would recommend that people can find you at M Peltier CIO, you know, on Twitter. Uh, always a ton of good stuff to read. I do it myself and, and enjoy it. Martin, thanks for finding time for us. Much appreciated. Thank you so much.